Hello, everyone. Welcome to Room Now's RA Recap. This is a post-meeting review of the great abstracts from uh, ULAR 2023, and this group is going to focus on the rheumatoid arthritis content that was prevalent at the meeting. I'm lucky to be joined by our um, our colleagues who were all at the meeting and all very keenly interested in RA. So we'll do introductions and then get right into it. Hi, I'm Jack Cush with Room Now in Dallas, Texas. Anthony? Hello, I'm Anthony Chen. I'm a consultant rheumatologist from London, United Kingdom. David? Uh, I'm David Lim uh, from Melbourne, Australia. And John Kay? And I'm Jonathan Kay from University of Massachusetts, Worcester, uh, UMass Chan Medical School in the United States. Uh, the, maybe the most disappointing part of this whole meeting is that John Kay did not have the opportunity to wear a beret or an appropriate headgear for Milan. John, did you search far and wide for something to wear on these recordings? Well, I looked for one of those Carabinieri uh, hats, but I couldn't find one. All right. We're going to have to work. To, I don't know what you wear in San Diego. You know, it's something to do with the 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 zoo or the or their their water park. All right. So let's just get into it. Um, uh, again, uh, this is a review of rheumatoid arthritis. Dr. Chan, why don't you begin? Yeah, ex, uh, thank you very much. Um, therapies were a big area at the EULA uh, 23 from rheumatoid arthritis. And I think there are a lot of uh, attention to the late breaking abstract 001, which is the uh, combined JAK1 TIC2 agent called TL, TLL018, which is a study looking at uh, this compound versus tofacitinib. And in this um, drug, uh, TLL018, they gave them a dose of 10 milligrams, 20 milligrams, and 30 milligrams versus tofacitinib, 5 milligrams in about 100 patients. Uh, in all these studies in the past, the ACR50 very rarely goes above 50%. This In this study, although in the early phase, uh, shows an ACR20 uh, between 65 to 72% in the people who received 10, 20, or 30. Uh, and the DAS28 score uh, in these patients, um, uh, remission scores were between 39% to 54%. Now, compared to tofacitinib, the ACR20 in this study was... 41% and the DAS28 uh, remission was 17%. So quite a significant um, improvement that we've never seen uh, levels at before, although early early studies, small numbers. But this combination JAK1, TIC2 seems promising, uh, certainly something that we should be investigating and looking forward to hear more about. So Anthony, why do you think A, the results would be that high, or B, um why they got numbers that no one else has ever gotten. I mean, is there a mechanism here that, as to why it might be that high or design Possibly, issue? possibly uh, the mechanism, uh, having a combination like this um, uh, with the TIC2 in, in addition to the JAK1, we don't know. Uh, we've not had this form of um, mode of action. Uh, we've had pan jacks, we've had um, selective jacks, but this is the JAK1 TIC2. Secondly, small numbers at the moment, 101 patients, um, and then selection of patients as well could influence uh, this, the, uh, the readings that we're seeing here. But I would say it uh, looks promising, but early days. So David, you were there and mm -hmm. described for me the other day that 
a little bit of pandemonium broke out about this. Describe what, what you saw and what your thoughts on this were. <laughs> well, I was sitting at the back left-hand corner of the room, as is my want often, and I could, all, I could see just some murmurs wave through the, the crowd. Everyone was, at, every time a new slide would come up, the, the cameras would go up, and then obviously there were some very cutting questions during the question and answer section. So I think that um, those kind of numbers are provocative. Those, I think no one was expecting those, that kind of quality of result, to, well, that kind of, um, that kind of result to come through. I guess the quality will, will find out in due course. I think a lot of us want to look at the paper. I mean, I think it's, you've got to navigate this idea that, um, yes, maybe this has been done. Um, this is a study that has been done in China. Um, I think that um, we'd um, like to see some of the results that do come through. I think there'd been some interesting things about the patient population that had been discussed at the time, but none of them had been on concomitant steroids. I think we found that a little bit hard to believe from a from our kind of paradigm. So a few things that may have been a little bit different, but you know, if those results really are true, and I think it's entirely possible that they are, then this is really um, potentially a breakthrough moment. And we'll see how this goes. Of course, the question will be about safety. Is we, we've got we've had some great reassurance from Duke Ravisitinib, um, the TIC2 inhibitor, and and so I guess we as long as we're not expecting synergistic, uh, the synergistic benefit from Jack1 TIC2 to lead to other safety issues, then potentially this is something which is a real winner. But the devil's in the detail. Yeah, John, what did you think of this? I had to leave a day early, but it's quite impressive. Uh, TIC2 is a, perhaps a safer, uh, TIC2 inhibitors seem to have a better safety profile than some of the JAK inhibitors. Uh, so with these numbers, uh, this is a very promising agent. We need to see more data and uh, subsequent study. You know, if you really want to get a trial that gets, you know, uber superior ACR 50s, the trial is going to be an early RA, uncontrolled open label, um, relatively naive patients who've never seen a drug before. This is exactly not the trial they did. They said these were difficult to treat RA patients, all of whom had been on a biologic DMARD uh, or more than one, and, um, and they were established disease. And it's just, it's, it's uh, a head scratcher. And my only thought is that on one hand, the TLL-018 drug looked so good as far as numbers, but the TOFA numbers look kind of bad. You know, like the TOFA 50, ACR-50 was what, 35% and the remission rate was 17%, something like that. They almost mm -hmm. looked like they, it underperformed. Mm -hmm. But so there's so much about this that makes me wonder, but as David said, um, if this is true, and we'll know when it gets to publication and we see all the data, um, I think that this could in some way change maybe RA therapies or maybe how we use JAKs. You know, current JAKs always have um, mostly this and a little bit of that when it comes to whether it's JAK1 specific or not. This one is strongly JAK1 and, and TIC2 inhibitory. And so it is different mechanistically. But again, no one had a great answer either at the podium or at the microphone. And um, Anthony, you get final say on this. Uh, again, yeah, I think, um, you know, very exciting if it's, if it's true that uh, they can treat such late stage, difficult to treat patients um, with this mode of action. 
I think certainly promising because um, we've not seen this combination before. Yeah. David, what do you have? I really just want to talk about uh, the recombinant zoster vaccine because I think those data are really important. Um, I've written about this, uh, but I, I wanted to address it in this panel and get your thoughts, especially as we talk a bit about jack inhibitor safety, because there's a lot about jack inhibitor safety at this meeting. And when we start talking about um, abstracts like the last one, then of course, safety is what comes to mind. One of the, the safety signals, which is undisputed, is that of um, herpes zoster, of, 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 um, of herpes zoster in, in, in patients on JAK inhibitors. And so this study is actually um, from the um, open label extension from Select Compare, which is one of the phase three studies with upadacitinib versus uh, placebo in patients on stable methotrexate. So in this um, open label study, they uh, gave patients two doses of, of Shingrix, the recombinant um, zoster vaccine, um, at zero weeks and at, at, at zero weeks and at 12 weeks, and then looked at their immunogenic response after that. So both in terms of human immunogenicity and then cellular immunogenicity as well. And while we didn't see the kind of levels that we'd necessarily expect to see in immunocompetent individuals, certainly we saw some very reassuring results. 85% of patients met the uh, mark in terms of uh, humoral immunogenicity. They actually um, came up with fairly uh, decent going titers. Uh, doesn't, didn't matter if they had had steroids or not, uh, concomitant steroids or not, they still um, mounted a response. And actually in the proportion of patients where they looked for cellular response, they saw that as well. So I think this is really important because firstly, we know our patients are at risk of zoster to start with. The, the medicines that we give them are often increase their risk of zoster and certainly um, steroids and JAK inhibitors are amongst those as well. Uh, we know as well that we, we can't, in the places where we have other zoster vaccines, we can't give them those zoster vaccines, things like Zostavax, because they're relatively contraindicated and there have been some safety concerns about that as well. But at the same time, we need to protect our patients in some sort of way. Um, the final thing I'll say is that there were only two reactive, only two flares of RA in this study. And I think that's really telling. We'd seen some data previously suggesting that maybe as, as many as one in three patients would flare with Shingrix administration because of a reactogenic adjuvant. But that's not what we saw in this study. And maybe that's because the um, upadacitinib and methotrexate continued right throughout. So that tells us that we can gain a decent response despite not withholding upadacitinib nor methotrexate when we vaccinate with Shingrix. And at the same time, if we do that, we minimize the risk of flares. Hey John, what did you think of this? Well, I think this is a reassuring abstract. I mean, it's important to remember that we want to vaccinate our patients as early as possible. So we shouldn't be in the position of having to wait until they're on upadacitinib to give them a zoster vaccine. But if we do, uh, these numbers look quite good. 85% uh, reactivity of the vaccine. You know, that's those are good numbers. Uh, so it helps to contribute to the safety profile of upadacitinib. Uh, is JAK1 selective inhibition better than uh, JAK12 or JAK3 uh, in terms of immunogenicity of a vaccine? Uh, I'd like to know a little bit more about the mechanism uh, to understand this better. Yeah, they're not having a control. That really uh, hurt them. And just uh, David was right in that this was uh, at this stage, um, it was only people on uh, upadacitinib, but the select compare at the outset 
was upadacitinib versus adalimumab. They completed the trial, and then the upadacitinib patients went forward, and those were, and, uh, so they were already upadacitinib experienced and actually largely controlled. Um, so they had stable disease, and then they were vaccinated, and, and these numbers are what we're quoting. Uh, Anthony, in the, in the UK, you have a number of uh, JAX available to you, and uh, do you use this uh, recombinant vaccine, and does this, these results kind of mirror what you see? So we are, it's become available now, um, being a non-live vaccine. And the nice thing in this study is that you don't have to stop the drug uh, in forest to administer it. I think the challenge here is all of these patients were on methotrexate in this study. And uh, we wonder whether if you if you stop the methotrexate maybe two weeks before the vaccine, whether the, the rates of seroconversion would be higher. Uh, but it wasn't done in this study. Um, but nevertheless, it's uh, it's a nice thing not to have to stop people's therapy while you give this vaccine. In the past, we'd have used the um, the Zostavax, which, which meant uh, stopping the treatment for a period of time for them to have this. So this is a much uh, a much better approach. Yeah, um, the the big bad player, and what makes this uninterpretable, honestly, is everybody's on methotrexate in the background. Fifty percent are on steroids, as David said. Steroids didn't matter, but everybody's on methotrexate. There are two drugs in rheumatology that clearly blunt humoral and, and even cellular responses, and it's rituximab and methotrexate. Not so clear that JAK inhibitors do this. Two or three years ago, there was a study on topositinib with 40 patients, Calmark et al., and they showed that four out of the 40 had no response while on topositinib and while getting uh, the shingles vaccine. So, uh, And there are other studies looking at um, JAK inhibitors and pneumococcal responses generally looks pretty good. But the bad player here, and you know why we only have 88% responses humorally, and that's still being a little bit lower than normal people, uh, um, not immunosuppressed people, and 66% cell-mediated responses, um, I think, well, I personally think, well, that's driven by the methotrexate background. And you wouldn't know because we don't have a control. But nonetheless, we want a study like this that helps us knowing what to do is Dr. Chan says, knowing whether we need to stop or hold or what to do. Uh, and even, and the author, Dr. Kevin Winthrop said, you know, we need to do this again, this time with controls and not with a, you know, just with an UPA only arm, at least to know what, you know, again, how to apply this data to clinical practice. So interesting. John, you must've seen something interesting at the meeting. I saw several very interesting things, but uh, the presentation that intrigued me the most was the Apipra presentation. Andy Cope, on the first full day of the meeting, presented the Apipra study on behalf of his co-investigators in the UK and the Netherlands. Uh, we all know that the STOP-RA, Kevin Dean's uh, prevention study, which looked at patients at risk for rheumatoid arthritis, enrolled patients who were anti-CCP antibody positive and gave them a year of hydroxychloroquine, and the study was stopped prematurely because of a lack of benefit. The APIPRA study was another prevention study, but it picked a different population. In this study, patients were enrolled who had anti-CCP antibodies, but they were also required to have arthralgias. So these are patients with a little bit more advanced disease. And they were treated with a Batacept, a T-cell co-stimulation inhibitor, as opposed to hydroxychloroquine. So a Batacept uh, affects cellular immunity. And this study was a positive study. So they were treated with a Batacept, 125 milligrams subcutaneously weekly for a year, 52 weeks, or with placebo. And then they were followed for another year. 
And the patients who were treated with abatacept had a significantly lower occurrence of rheumatoid arthritis uh, than the control group. And the separation was even more pronounced when they looked at patients with an expanded autoantibody profile with more autoantibodies to citronated peptides and also rheumatoid factor, suggesting that there's a population of patients with arthralgia who have a relatively mature immune response and those patients are most susceptible to abatacept, to co-stimulation inhibition, and preventing the development of rheumatoid arthritis. So this study showed that, first of all, abatacept may be an effective drug, and that the window of time in which to intervene may be narrower than we thought, that we shouldn't be going to uh, health fairs and looking for anybody who's CCP positive and treating them with something, but maybe waiting for patients to develop arthralgias and following their immune response, looking at the extent of their immune response and picking those patients who are potentially most susceptible uh, to prevention with abatacept. The other interesting point here was that those patients with arthralgia had improvement in patient-reported outcomes uh, with abatacept therapy. So there was a benefit to abatacept in the patients with arthralgia. Now, we're not gonna treat patients with arthralgia with abatacept for no other reason, but if it's effective in preventing progression to rheumatoid arthritis and has a therapeutic benefit during that first year of therapy, it's a win-win situation. So this is a fascinating positive study and I think perhaps the most important prevention study so far. It certainly was positive at, at least with the end point of being the delay in the onset of disease. As John said, during the blinded portion, when everybody was on the placebo or abatacept, it was 6% versus 29%. Another year off of all therapy for both groups, it was like 27 versus 32%. So the numbers came, came closer together. But then, as John points out, the more seropositive you are, the more autoantibodies you had, the more those lines stayed separate. So it at least delayed it in the subset. It might have prevented it. And the question is, will we in fact use this? Um, and do we have enough evidence? We fail with methotrexate in prompt and treat earlier, at least as far as the primary endpoints. And then it looks like the abatacept trials at both the uh, area we covered last year and then now this one, um, these are encouraging. And the question is, would you, would you, do, would you give your mother or mother-in-law you know, who has arthralgias and CCP, would you give her uh, abatacept? And I think that that's a remains to be seen, but this is at least there's some consistency in results in the Ab three abatacept trials that are out there. So well, the big challenge in the United States is going to be getting coverage for it. The pharmacy benefit managers are probably very unlikely to cover abatacept in patients with arthralgia based on these studies. Uh, although the studies to me are very convincing, I'm looking forward to the publication. Yeah, it'll it will be. I have so let's get into a round of quickies. My quickie has to comes from the Mayo Clinic and Croson et al., which looked at I think it was poster POS0319 on uh, steroid use um, in two different eras. Um, one era beginning in 1999 for nine years, second era beginning in 2009 for nine years, and they showed that in these two eras, um, steroid use didn't go down. 65% and 71% started treatment with the, with the initiation of steroids. 
they both groups, both eras, they lowered their steroid use over time. But unfortunately, at the end of uh, six months and beyond, 30% remained on steroids. The, so the point being that in a more modern era with more therapies and whatnot, we should be using less steroids and we're not. And more worrisome was the subtext that elderly patients were more likely to start steroids in both eras. And they're also more likely to not stop the steroids. Unfortunately, elderly, as you would imagine, and as shown in the paper in the poster, had more, more comorbidities and less background DMARD therapies, as has been seen in other elderly. So again, it's a reminder study that we should do better than we are currently doing with steroids. And again, I'm jumping up and down about this saying, don't prescribe steroids unless it comes with an expiration date. And uh, otherwise, patients just linger on steroids and the consequences of that. Okay, let's say, what, what would be your, your quickies? Let's begin to go back to Anthony, if you have a yeah, sort of um, quick one. Thanks very much. I, I love I love posters and great and great to have all these posters back at the meeting. I was interested in uh, uh, from the Germans uh, rabbit uh, registry poster 0174. And this was a study looking at uh, rheumatoid patients with interstitial lung disease and looking at all cause death. Uh, and uh, they looked at people who were treated with uh, DMARTs, uh, biologics, and those who weren't. And interestingly, if uh, the patients who were treated with biologics, their survival was much better than compared to those who weren't treated. It's, so the uh, mortality was 2.8 times higher in the non-treated group versus the treated group. Um, so uh, we tend to um, perhaps uh, shy away from using some of these drugs in patients with interstitial lung disease, but Increasingly at this meeting, we're seeing that metotrexate and these biologics have a protective effect uh, in this group of patients in terms of all-cause mortality. Um, so um, it kind of really helps seal that, that we should be treating these patients uh, um, you know, aggressively. So what therapies was this being compared to? So, I assume that they're not all rituximab, but it's what, what was that? What it's were a mixture. On? So they had a batisep, a rituximab, tocilizumab, and a TNF. And they looked across the board, and um, the comparator was TNF uh, as the baseline. Uh, and um, what they found is that there were some uh, uh, interesting choices. So they were going for, uh, in TNF, uh, the people who had TNF uh, were generally people who uh, had a higher, slightly higher risk. And so they were going for that group. And then the others, the, the IL-6 was used in the younger group. Um, and then they looked at these different groups and then looked at the all-cause mortality and found that uh, people who were those who had treated had a, had a better survival rate. So David, what do you do in patients RA with ILD? Does that color your therapy? Are you more likely to give them more aggressive therapy or uh, are you not con yet convinced by the data? Well, I think that, uh, you know, the fundamentals are that you've got to try and treat the underlying disease. But having said that, I think we've seen, we obviously saw data from those um, combined Scandinavian registries that got presented on the first day in the oral abstracts, uh, looking at interstitial lung disease as a consequence of methotrexate, and then as looking at biologic DMARDs. And uh, we didn't see any um, association between, um, they looked at RA and PSA patients, we didn't see any association with methotrexate and, and chronic interstitial lung disease. We didn't see any signals for any of the other um, biologic DMARDs. So I think that gives me some uh, reassurance regarding that as well. Um, but in terms of actually dealing with the under, with underlying kind of RAILD progression, ultimately every single study that we've, we've really kind of used to interrogate this is about disease control, and that's what we've got to go for. 
you know, I have to, uh, uh, I agree with Anthony's sort of takeaway on this that, uh, and what David just said, and that I, I too would, would endorse this. But to understand it, I would point to John Kay convincing me to invite Dr. Michael Brenner from Harvard to lecture at Room Now Live on the role of the fibroblast in RA pathogenesis and outcome. It's an unbelievable lecture. It's the one thing we're not treating. It's one of the reasons why we don't see a lot of movement with some of our best therapies on something like ILD, where it's a fibrotic um, condition, not necessarily, probably driven to some extent by inflammation. But at that, but at that point, there comes a point when inflammation is no longer important and the fibrosis continues. So I would just encourage people to look at uh, uh, the video that's on the website and on the YouTube channel from Dr. Michael Brenner in Room Now Live. It does help explain a lot what goes on in rheumatoid arthritis and what the unmet need is. John, your impression of this research? Yeah, and I, I agree. And I, I would treat the disease more aggressively uh, just to control disease. But as you point out with Mike Brenner's uh, talk about the role of the fibroblast, there are different subsets of rheumatoid arthritis which have different cell types that are dominant. And we treat macrophage dominant with TNF inhibitors and lymphocyte dominant, maybe with T-cell co-stimulation and inhibitors, B-cell dominant with uh, rituximab. Uh, but the fibroblast dominant disease needs to be addressed differently. Uh, and Cospitalis is really addressing this by doing biopsies and subsetting patients and directing treatment according to the histopathology. And I think ultimately that's going to be the way we're going in terms of treatment of these diseases. Yeah. David, you have a, another one? Um, just a quick one. I think telling us something that we probably already knew, um, and sometimes it's nice to be told that what we know already makes sense. This is from the oral abstract sessions, uh, looking at methotrexate in men who are trying to conceive, men with rheumatoid arthritis trying to conceive, We've been telling um, in men in that situation that it's been fine to continue taking on methotrexate, that paternal methotrexate is not something we should be worrying about during conception. And there's some nice um, rationale that came through, which has now been published in the Annals of Rheumatic Diseases, looking at FPGS as an enzyme. That's an enzyme that's responsible for methotrexate polyglutamate uh, metabolism. It's lacking in spermatozoa, and that really explains why we end up with polyglutamate one and less of the, the, the later polyglutamates, which are responsible for the actions that we see in, in other places um, that's beneficial for rheumatoid arthritis, but not so much so for um, sperm health. So I think that gives us a really clear rationale for why we um, make the recommendations that we do. And I think we can keep on reassuring our male rheumatoid arthritis patients who are trying to conceive. And that they, again, the bottom line is that they should be stopping methotrexate or is it okay to continue? You uh, continue, continue away just as we have with recommendations. I mean, do you, would you recommend otherwise? Um, no. Um, and, uh, and the current ACR guidelines say that um, males don't need to uh, stop their therapy um, when it comes to conceiving or with the maybe exception of cyclophosphamide everything else um, is okay to continue uh, um, and because there's no reported benefits. But this, this particular abstract looked at it more from a mechanistic standpoint. And then the fact that it agrees, I think is encouraging. Absolutely. David, uh, I'm sorry, John, uh, your last one. So uh, the last one is one that hit the jackpot. Uh, this was a presentation on the second day of the meeting. 
Uh, and there were three presentations in the oral session on rheumatoid arthritis that dealt with safety or lack thereof of JAK inhibitors. And all three uh, presentations basically debunked the randomized controlled trial oral surveillance, uh, which showed that there was not non-inferiority in terms of major adverse cardiovascular events or malignancy. The jackpot study was a combination, a compilation of 14 registries from across Europe and also including Turkey and Quebec, Canada. And they looked at patients who were starting JAK inhibitors, TNF inhibitors, or biologic DMARDs with non-TNF modes of action. And they looked at the incidence of major adverse cardiovascular events, strokes, myocardial infarctions, and transient ischemic attacks. And they looked at all patients with the referent group being the TNF inhibitors. And they found that there was a numerically lower incidence of major adverse cardiovascular events with JAK inhibitors and not much difference with other mechanisms of action. But the 95% confidence intervals crossed unity, so these were not significant differences. So for all patients, they found that JAK inhibitors or biologics with non-TNF mechanisms of action were no greater in terms of the risk of major adverse cardiovascular events. And then like everybody who does these kinds of registry studies or claims database studies, they replicate the uh, inclusion criteria of oral surveillance. Patients who are 50 years of age or older with at least one cardiovascular risk factor. And what they found here was that again, the JAK inhibitors were numerically lower in terms of the incidence rate for major adverse cardiovascular events, as were, in this case, the other mechanisms of action. But again, the 95% confidence intervals crossed unity. So there was no statistically significant difference in the incidence rate of major cardiovascular events, major adverse cardiovascular events with JAK inhibitors or other mechanisms of action. So in the United States, we're faced with boxed warnings on all the JAK inhibitors, um, but uh, clinical experience uh, in what's so-called real-world settings uh, seems to debunk the gold standard of a randomized prospective controlled trial uh, oral surveillance. So uh, it's looking as if JAK inhibitors may be less dangerous uh, than they're purported to be uh, by the regulators. Yeah, my, I have a contrary view, and and not surprising, right? Um, and, and obviously, these are efforts based on registries, long-term extensions, large data collections that try to, uh, as you say, debunk or apologize for the oral surveillance study based with really, really large numbers. And actually, in this particular, the jackpot study, which is a total of 20 registries, they only reported, I think, 14 or 15 from the meeting. Um, the problem, the 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 problem was highlighted when I, when you looked at the numbers. The numbers were like over 30,000 patients and over 54,000 courses of drug, but the actual event rates in the three different groups, TNF, JACs, and then MOAs, was 30 to 80 events. And it was incredibly low. So I actually looked up the oral surveillance numbers and the event rate is roughly one per 100 patient years of the 4,500 patients in oral surveillance. The rates in this, in, in this study were one to two per 1,000 patient years. And so when, you, when I asked the author about this, he did a lot of hemming and hawing and basically said, you know, 
it's the problem of registries. You know, there's incomplete reporting and how it's reported on in Quebec and how it's reported in Turkey is different than how it's reported in Finland. And, and, and they have no uniformity and often it's free text. Um, and so these efforts that try hard to justify our continued use of jacket numbers, which I'm thoroughly in favor of, um, never quite meet the mark of the double blind randomized controlled trial. And, and I think it's uh, the fact that a lot of people, we, we don't like the backlash on this, the restrictions on this, because you know the fact is that the data applies to over 65 smokers with an MI, and that makes up like an incredible minority of my patients who I'm putting on my jack inhibitor. But the majority of my patients are dealing with the rules, the new rules for jack inhibition. So I, I, we see, we're going to see a lot of these studies, um, and I and, and I like it if they can make me feel better about myself. I just can't overcome the superiority of the oral surveillance. Well, I agree that there are limitations with registry studies, as you point out. But the Star RA study, which was a claims database study, also showed that the risk of major adverse cardiovascular events was not increased with JAK inhibitors in the replicate group for the oral surveillance study. And claims data are a bit more uh, comprehensive uh, in that they're picking up diagnostic codes for cardiovascular events uh, as well as rheumatoid arthritis. There's always the chance of misclassification. Uh, but yeah, the, One of the, and I think we're going to play volleyball on this one, in that uh, all these studies never can never attempt to replicate the truly all the enrollment characteristics, including disease activity, including right. the background therapies. Um, they can get the age right and the cardiovascular risk factor right, but the rest, they we're good. we have we've got to go on faith. And um, again, I use those I use that star uh, RA study all the time when trying to talk about whether these drugs are safe or not. But um, the problem is we're going to see a lot of these studies, and I, I'm afraid of a false sense of security. And and I'm going to have to live with. I mean, in the UK, they have rules that Nice came out with this year about the same. Uh, Thing a little bit different than the FDA. I'm sure in Australia they have, and New Zealand they have their own set of rules that uh, you know limit these drugs. But um, it's, it's anyway. Other comments about this study? Well, I think even with Star RA, um, while it wasn't statistically significant, the point estimate was but of for jack inhibitors versus TNF inhibitors was um, if you with the duplicate cohort was 1.24. Um, and so I think it's hard to completely exonerate it on the basis of that. And I think we also, if you're going to talk about real world data, I mean, once again, just to play a bit of devil's advocate, the EMA have moved on the basis of um, unpublished uh, real world data regarding baricitinib and the concerns regarding that and, and, and MESA base in, in, in those patients. So I think that ultimately we we'll have to try, I mean, we would love to wait and see how things go with the baricitinib um, post-marketing requirement uh, randomized control trial. And I think that will tell us a lot about whether this is a class effect or not. Um, but in the meantime, it's not unreasonable that we proceed with some caution and it's hard to completely uh, exonerate things on the basis of the real world data we have with, I will say as well, limited risk windows. That's the other bit I'd argue. Really, when a lot of these patients have got relatively short risk windows, we might not necessarily expect that to be sufficient exposure to develop the cancers and the major adverse cardiovascular events that we're concerned about. So, yes. I can see the both sides of the argument. 
So, you know, even though I presented the jackpot study in a positive light, uh, the point that Jack makes about not having disease activity information, mm. disease activity plays a major role in the development of these comorbidities. And certainly lymphoma and cardiovascular adverse events are much more common with, with persistent chronic inflammation. And registries are never going to reliably get disease activity information and certainly claims databases lack that completely. So uh, again, even though this is interesting and a great subject to prompt discussion, uh, we still need to exercise caution when prescribing JAK inhibitors. I, I wanna pass on one thing I learned back in 2003 while serving on the FDA advisory committee that evaluated the three COX-2 inhibitors. And we had three days of hearings and the data representations were overwhelming. A lot of it, trying to justify whether there was a serious, real COX-2 cardiovascular risk um, was registry data and large data sets, just like we're talking about now. I was blown away by presentations by epidemiologists, but specifically by Milton Packer, who's big in the cardiology world as a sort of um, trials guy, epidemiology guy. And and he said something which I have subsequently found to be true in many ways, and that is that large data sets, like, especially registries, are never proof of principle. At best, they are hypothesis generating that needs to be proven in a, by other methodologies um, to be truly valid. And otherwise, all we can do is just feel good about what the registry showed us. So uh, with that said, I'll, I'll ask Anthony to close with any other comments on this. Uh, I think uh, I think they are they they were done at different times. So these uh, registries were record recorded pre um, oral surveillance. So uh, yeah, uh, so there should be well. Uh, leave some, it to Dr. Some... Chan to get it right, and mm -hmm. and I forgot that point. So the point that he's that Dr. Chan is making is all the data that's being reported in Jackpot was actually accrued prior to the announcement of the oral surveillance study, which faulted as you may, whatever problems they had were problems across the board. And the relative differences between the treatment groups still remain the same, meaning that there was no difference. So maybe this, maybe the story is right. Thank you, Anthony, for bringing that up. That's very important. All right, folks, thanks for this great review of RA Topics at ULAR 2023. Tomorrow night, same time, same bat channel, we're going to discuss the hot topics on lupus. Tune in then. Thank you, guys. Thanks. Thanks.